Welcome back to another episode of the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. I'm your host, Woodrow Bellamy III. We've got a great interview for you today with Peter Lemmy, an aviation industry consultant and blogger and former Boeing engineer, better known online as the SATCOM guru, who provided us with a Connected Aircraft Cybersecurity 101 style interview. And a quick reminder that Registration is open for the 2020 Global Connected Aircraft Summit in Denver, Colorado, June 2nd through the 3rd. Our opening panel session for the entire event this year will feature three different airlines, Alaska, United, and American, discussing this exact topic featured in today's episode from an airline and user point of view. We will also have a presentation from Troy Gibson, who is the Chief Technology Officer of NetJets, and a number of other exciting panels case studies, and networking sessions that are planned so you don't want to miss it. Check out www.gcasummit.com for more information or to register. And now, let's get into today's conversation. Welcome to episode 19 of the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. I'm your host, Woodrow Bellamy III, and today we have a very special guest. If you could introduce yourself and if you could first just give us some brief background about yourself and your career um, and what type of role you're currently focused with uh, within the industry right now. Uh, hi, I'm Peter Lemmy. Uh, thanks to Woodrow for inviting me. Uh, I re- appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Um, I, I started in the industry way back in 1981 when I, I joined Boeing uh, out of college. I worked on a system called Pitch Augmentation Control System. Uh, and that led me to another system called Thrust Management, or the Auto Throttle. And I spent about 10 years uh, developing that for the 757, 767, and 747-400. Uh, by 1990, I had uh, become a FADR, and I was supervisor for uh, data link SATCOM and flight recording. Uh, and at that time, Inmarsat was just getting going, and so we had an opportunity to kind of bring Inmarsat uh, online. And uh, and then we used that with ACARS to develop the uh, the fans data link, and that was first completed back in 1995. In 97, I left Boeing, went to Iridium, uh, stayed there for a few years. Of course, as we know, uh, Iridium went bankrupt, and they're, and, and they're back now under new, new uh, ownership. Uh, I left there and went to Tenzing Communications, trying to bring email to passengers, and uh, that, that didn't go so well, especially after 2001, one events. And uh, for about the last 15 years, I've just been consulting in the industry, mostly around satellite communications. Um, I'm currently supporting the Seamless Air Alliance. Uh, I voluntarily support the AWC, KUK, Band, Techcom Subcommittee. I've been doing that for over 12 years now. And uh, of late, over the last few years, I've been writing a blog, Guru, which uh, has been, uh, unfortunately, focused mostly on aircraft uh, systems recently. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I myself, um, very familiar with Peter, um, had a lot of discussions over the years. So uh, glad we were able to get you on the podcast today. Um, so today uh, we'll be talking about a area of in-flight connectivity that 
um, we always discuss every year at the Global Connected Aircraft Summit, and that is cybersecurity. Um, and, you know, this has definitely been extensively covered in, um, you know, aviation trade publications and just, you know, mainstream media outlets. It's a big concern for a lot of airlines that are adding in-flight connectivity to their aircraft. Um, so we wanted to get sort of an understanding of how, you know, what, what cyber threats exist today for aircraft, how airlines are addressing that, and um, couldn't think of a better person to, to, to discuss this with than Peter. Um, so let's start with the basics. Uh, considering most of the major U.S. airlines today feature some form of in-flight connectivity uh, or are in the process of upgrading and, and airlines in other regions are still kind of catching up, what do you kind of consider the biggest cybersecurity threats to the connected aircraft, and how do you categorize them? So airworthiness security is the protection from intentional, unauthorized electronic interaction. Up until cybersecurity threats came to be, uh, avionics was designed around physical threats, uh, wireless signal dropouts, uh, bit flipping, putting in parity checks, things like that. These were all uh, unintended uh, adjustments or mistakes on a, on, a, on a data stream. But with uh, cybersecurity, we now have to deal with somebody that is intentionally uh, trying to, in a malicious manner, uh, uh, change the information. And uh, we refer to the attack vectors as a way to visualize how a malicious uh, actor intrudes into a system. Unfortunately, wireless systems are hopelessly exposed. You, you can't stop the signal. So speaking of the airplane itself, and we'll just focus on the airplane, you know, the part with the wings, if you will, uh, on board the aircraft, there are wireless points of attachment, one having to do with the wireless access points. That's what passengers, you know, use Wi-Fi to connect to. And then the airplane has a connection to the ground, effectively a connection to the Internet. And once you connect to the Internet, of course, you, uh, you now have uh, a, a global threat uh, at your doorstep. And then uh, just beyond the points of attachment are the internetworks themselves or how those uh, points of attachment, uh, where the attack vector uh, comes into the network, uh, how far can they go? And so the internetworks themselves become part of the mix. So passenger, passengers bring devices to the aircraft. Um, they may not know or be aware of the fact that their devices have been compromised in some manner. And it's possible those devices are acting as a platform for malicious behavior unwittingly. Um, passengers themselves could be a malicious actor. Uh, we, we know uh, Chris Roberts, I think, opened up our eyes uh, when he brought on board the aircraft a dongle that he had crafted uh, that he intended to and claims to have connected to a seat box uh, by removing a cover plate, obviously something that no passenger was expected to have access to, nor, nor a passenger having the uh, appropriate tools, or, or in this case, a dongle to connect to. So that's that's a pretty eye-opening um, uh, attack. It's very unexpected. The, um, the onboard Wi-Fi system that all of the service providers provide today are operated in the open. They're, they're a public hotspot. There's no specific uh, over-the-air security that's applied to it, and that exposes the passengers themselves. So um, any time you connect to a public hotspot and, and onboard systems are in that mix, um, you have to be very careful because your information can be uh, intercepted. Then we kind of move to uh, the, the, the avionics interfaces. The one, probably the most significant attack vector 
to worry about is software data loading because uh, when you bring software to the airplane, you bypass effectively all the networking protections. You you uh, you go go right to the heart of the system, and and when you do that, you have the potential for overriding or disabling those those measures. So, uh, software that's brought to the airplane has to have uh, assurances that it's been uh, prepared for and is being loaded appropriately and by authorized personnel. Flight controls, really starting with the 777 and going forward, all flight control systems now are internetworked using a form of Ethernet. It's not the Ethernet we're familiar with. It's a time-triggered Ethernet or Air 64 Part 7 or AFDX. It goes by different names. Um, but nevertheless, it is a form of Ethernet, and um, that, that opens up uh, networking challenges. Uh, any, any connected application on board the aircraft uh, that's inside a system stands uh, open to some form of attack from the internet. Uh, so there have to be there have to be measures put in place. Additionally, the uh, maintenance interfaces tend to be developed at a slightly lower standard than the actual function themselves. It's to allow for a little more freedom in developing more comprehensive maintenance uh, functionality. Unfortunately, uh, the, because of that, the maintenance interface may be exposed more readily than the actual operational system. And we've seen that now. Uh, with an attack on, a, on at least one uh, service provider's modem through a maintenance interface. So the maintenance interface uh, is an attack vector that we have to be careful for. Finally, uh, data link themselves. So when we talk about data link, we're talking about messages uh, sent to or from the airplane. This, is, this isn't having anything to do with passengers. This is with uh, pilot interfaces or uh, other connected applications. And uh, in general, uh, if a message is delivered to the airplane and, it, and all the checksums uh, pass and it, uh, it arrived uh, in a timely manner and it's consistent in the message sequencing and so forth, uh, it'll be accepted. And so a message will be presented to the pilot or to a subsystem uh, as if it is valid. And if it's been maliciously modified, uh, at that point it's up to the pilot uh, in general to uh, recognize, or the controller in this case, to recognize that the message has been um, modified in some manner, usually through some contextual disconnect. Yeah, and I wanted to follow up on a few things that you mentioned there. Um, you know, I think most, probably most within our audience are probably familiar with, with the Chris Roberts incident and um, the sort of follow-up investigations and outcomes of that. Um, but the, the what you mentioned about the dongle and, and also sort of what he outlined um, what he tried to do. Um, now there is a sort of a one-way feed between um, some of the in-flight entertainment systems and the um, you know Arink 429 feed of navigation data that'll populate that moving map on your IFE screen. Could you talk a little bit about that, Peter? Um, that was one of the things that Roberts mentioned in his attempt. Uh, of course, the, that was, you know, kind of proven not to be true. But could you talk about that as well uh, and, and how that's it's just a one-way feed, but it is something that, that is kind of interesting to learn about? Sure. Uh, so in-flight entertainment has long been recognized as a, um, a threat to the airplane as far as uh, the potential for it to malfunction in some manner. Um, don't take this the wrong way, but it's, uh, it's certified at the lowest level, and from an avionics uh, safety and cybersecurity perspective, we assume that it is malfunctioned and it, and it is corrupted all the time. 
that we, we don't take any credit for the IFC, if you will, uh, protecting the airplane. Uh, the airplane has to protect itself from the IFC. And for that matter, uh, we, we, ha- we do have to share information with the IP system to, as you mentioned, to allow the moving map to be representative of where the aircraft is and where it's heading and so forth. Uh, it also helps with uh, the, the, you know, the user experience, knowing uh, if, if you have enough time to watch a movie or, 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 or things like that. So um, that, that, and that information, by the way, it started with Airshow back in the Oh, must have been uh, late 1980s uh, when we started to need to uh, connect the IFE system to the onboard uh, avionics. And so, uh, as you mentioned, there's a broadcast data bus that's uh, generally shared with the IFE. It's a one-way transfer information. It, it only goes to the IFE. It doesn't come out of the IFE in any way. Nobody else is listening to that bus of consequence. So if the IFE system uh, were to take the bus out, which is the most likely failure, uh, nobody else, no, nothing of consequence or unsafe would happen to the airplane. So any any claim that the IFE system can uh, push information out into the avionics system is far-fetched. There's really no evidence that that is, is uh, capable, and it's counter to all of the design uh, goals that, that uh, we as an industry have set aside, which is, again, to uh, make sure that the IFE does not in any way introduce an unsafe situation on the airplane. And so... Uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, um, especially in the in the U.S., there's a you know high volume of the number of connected aircraft. Other regions are there. There are certainly um, you know connected aircraft in other regions, but uh, they're certainly catching up to the U.S. Um, what, from your perspective, are some of aviation industry's best practices today? in terms of connecting those aircraft from cyber threats? Uh, and can you also define what exactly it is that they are trying to protect? The first step, uh, it's, it's true with any, any, uh, any situation, the first step is to admit you have a problem uh, before you can solve that problem. So the first, the first step in assessing any concern around cybersecurity is uh, you have to start with a threat analysis. So RTCA and Yorkai work together. DO-356A is the current standard uh, that expresses the methodology, and it's focused on sort of three elements, confidentiality of the information, uh, integrity of the information, and availability of the information. So um, many I understand that many, many aircraft systems have no operational networking interface. This, this would be true for uh, older airplanes, uh, uh, but even even like the 747-400, which was the first real connected airplane, uh, there's really no Ethernet networking that's uh, rampant. Uh, the flight management system, the uh, the flight control computers, et cetera, they don't they don't operate over Ethernet in, in the man, in the manner that we have today. So those systems are are kind of a don't care. They're not. There's, there really is no cyber threat. But starting really starting with the triple seven and going forward, we have far more. Uh, connected systems, as I mentioned, Ethernet is, uh, is, a, is a technology that's sort of unifying those networks. And so we, ha- we have to deal with it. And um, the first, the first uh, step, as I mentioned, is to assess those threats. And the assessment is to determine the severity of the threat. What, what could that interface do uh, in a malicious way? Not, not talking about what you could do to stop it from doing that, but, but if it had its way, if, no, if nobody was standing uh, in its way, what what could that attack vector accomplish? That's the that's the first step. Based on that severity, um, the response is to define mitigations that address that to to under, undermine those threats to stop them. Uh, the the type of mitigation and the number of mitigations 
uh, scales with uh, severity of the threat. Um, and, and effectively, what we're doing is is just like with hazard analysis, uh, where we're, we're we're managing risk by exposure. So, so what we're talking about is putting measures in place that uh, minimize the chance that one of these um, threats will get through the mitigations. The most severe uh, threats, something that would cause a, a, a catastrophe on the airplane, can't can't, uh, can't be allowed. So in that case, we have actually extra measures. We have to provide two two barriers. And the the way to think about this is just like with uh, hazard analysis, uh, we start with, uh, uh, if you will, uh, uh, no safety effect. Uh, it's, this is where we are with IFE. It, it has no consequence to the safe operation of the airplane. Uh, its failure can be assumed, and, and, and nobody really cares. The next left step up is loss of function, and a good example of that is with data link. So uh, if the ACAR system uh, uh, is broken and the airplane is unable to communicate over data link, uh, that's considered a minor effect. It, it increases the crew workload a little bit, but it, um, it, it doesn't drive uh, the crew into any kind of um, stressed situation. Sending a message to the airplane that uh, has been corrupted, as I mentioned earlier, uh, without uh, without the pilot recognizing it as being corrupted. In other words, the message looks valid. Uh, this is a misleading information. Uh, it can happen. A threat isn't the only way that that can happen. We worry about that through physical, uh, you know, bit flipping and things like that. That's a major failure situation. That is that is a, a, a consequential event. Uh, it could uh, cause the pilot to be distracted uh, to take actions that um, might might not be the best uh, for the for that moment in time. So it's considered major. Uh, and then moving up, because uh, uh, we did talk about flight controls, if you got into a situation where you uh, lost a flight control system, uh, maybe elevator control or aileron control or something like that, that's considered a, a hazardous situation. It's not generally catastrophic uh, if it's a single failure because the airplane is designed around jammed flight controls. So for any, for any flight control that may become disabled, the airplane has uh, a robust you know, methodology to use other flight controls to fill in the gap. Not an ideal situation, but enough to get you, uh, you know, and land safely. If, on the other hand, you have undetected corrupted flight controls or multiple failures of flight controls, you may be in a situation where uh, the airplane is, uh, is, not, uh, is not flyable anymore that a, a catastrophe is uh, imminent and that that would be catastrophic. So, so we have to think about um, the, the severity along those lines. And again, when you get all the way up to catastrophic, um, you, can't, you can't get by with a single mitigation. You have to have multiple mitigations so that no single failure can drive it. Um, the FAA, uh, uh, you know, starting really with uh, uh, the 777 going forward, and I think other regulators have followed suit, require every applicant to demonstrate that if they have connected systems, that they've addressed cybersecurity threats and um, that they've developed mitigations. And those have to be presented in the form of an of a issue paper. Uh, so there's no, there's no template, there's no advisory circular that says this is how you uh, create a safe uh, airplane. You, you left your own devices. And unfortunately, you know, right or wrong, the FAA doesn't circulate their uh, conclusions around this. So every applicant uh, comes to an agreement with the FAA around cybersecurity objectives, but those objectives are, 
are not uh, reviewed by the public. There's no there's no comments or, or any oversight. It's left to uh, the parties that are involved to make those assessments. And that gets to trust. <laughs> In cybersecurity, trust is a four-letter word. It has five letters, but it's it's to be avoided. Um, the whole point of trust is that it's a non-threatening um, interface. So if you trust something, by definition, it's non-threatening. And by that by that nature, it's really something that we should avoid. We need to be more um, diligent about our assessment of something being corrupted or not. And uh, notably, of all the actors that we that we work with in the industry, you know, a service provider and, and the airline and so forth, we generally trust everybody that's in the mix, except for the passenger. We 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 uh, categorically don't trust the passenger. Um, as far as best practices go. The, uh, the first and most important uh, element of that is domain segmentation. The idea being that you um, separate the aircraft functions uh, by, their, um, by, their, by their capability. And, and we've divided those into four, uh, aircraft control being uh, the most uh, restricted domain. This is where flight controls would live. This is where data link uh, uh, lives. Then we go to aircraft information systems. These are... Uh, avionics interfaces that are largely around airplane health monitoring, trend monitoring, things like that, but they're not necessarily directly in the line of control of the airplane. Uh, passenger entertainment information, that's the IFE back end. Uh, so this is all the communication going on uh, within the IFE uh, as far as managing the kit on board the aircraft and communicating off board and so forth. And then finally, the fourth domain is passenger-owned devices which are, of course, the devices the passengers bring to the airplane, whether it be a laptop or a, a mobile phone or something like that. So, so the idea is that uh, in the world of Ethernet, there are four different Ethernet networks on board the aircraft, um, starting with aircraft control, going all the way down to passenger devices. Each one of those domains is physically separated from the other. So there's no, there's no crossover, there's no electrical wire, there's no sneak circuit or any way from... Uh, communication within one domain to communicate uh, up the chain, if you will, to a higher a higher domain. And this is a very important architectural feature. Uh, it's something that uh, the OEMs, Boeing and Airbus, uh, maintain, and, and of course every applicant uh, is, uh, is hyper-focused on. In addition to that, we throw in things like uh, commercial off-the-shelf uh, firewalls, standard ISP measures. That's sort of the lowest layer of, of uh, protection, if you will. Um, it's important to note that generally, and, and this is, uh, this is, I'm pretty sure this is 100% true, we, uh, we establish uh, connectivity from the airplane down. So we never allow somebody to initiate the first communication to an airplane. We always start with the airplane establishing itself to make sure that it knows who it's, it's contacting with and who it's connected with. Um, we we uh, restrict maintenance on the ground, so we, we don't allow certain maintenance activities to occur when the aircraft is in service. Uh, software loading is a big example of that. Um, we, as an industry, the best practice is to use certificate-based authentication. This is a uh, kind of a, not that hard technically, but it's hard administratively to maintain. So there's some baggage comes along with certificates, but uh, it's worth it. Uh, the, the, the way we work today in the industry is uh, typically we use what's called pre-shared keys. In other words, uh, passwords that are fixed and known, and in some cases, uh, multiple people use the same password. It's, a, it's not where we want to be as an industry, so we need to move to personally assign 
unique certificate-based authentication. From there, we can restrict people to certain roles. We have uh, traceability of who did what, when and where, and so forth. And then finally, um, when communicating off the airplane, there is a whole tandem set of networks that we have to interact with, starting from the onboard network to the uh, backhaul system to get us to the ground, through the teleport, and then across the many, many uh, ops that it takes uh, in the Internet to get us to whatever enterprise we're trying to communicate with. <clears throat> and, the, uh, and the solution to securing that is to move to a virtual private network or a VPN end-to-end. So it starts from the airplane and extends all the way down to, um, uh, to the enterprise. And, and that allows us to abstract all of the intermediate systems and not worry about them because we, don't, we only have to worry about the, uh, the end systems. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to learn about the end-to-end VPN. Um, could you expand a little bit on that, and how how do you see that working for uh, you know for an individual airline? How how would they you know make that happen? Okay, the good news is uh, we're not inventing anything here. So um, mobile offices, portable uh, 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 applications, uh, remote offices, uh, the need for employees or uh, uh, enterprise uh, uh, workers, if you will, and, and their facilities to communicate to a central office has, has uh, been around for, oh, you know, 40 years, really. Um, and so uh, uh, technology was developed to allow for securing that communication, this virtual private network. The, the VPN that we're most uh, um, uh, attracted to is IPsec. Is a, it's a, a particular VPN uh, technology. It's widely embraced. Literally every company that you can think of, uh, if they have an IT uh, group and they have an enterprise data center, they're going to have um, appliances in there that can terminate IPsec VPN tunnels. So these, these tunnels um, allow for uh, encryption and authentication and integrity checks. So all the things we want end to end. So when I when I establish a connection from the airplane to, let's say I'm talking to the uh, airline. So the airline has a uh, has a data center and they have a point of presence, a public point of presence. This is on the internet, so to speak. And uh, through the teleport, the aircraft also has a public point of presence. And so the airplane on the on uh, the terminal on the airplane can initiate an IPsec tunnel. It will go down through the teleport. It'll be directed to that point of presence. This is all, all known in advance. We, we don't discover this on the fly. We configure all of this ahead of time. And it'll knock on the door of the airline's uh, enterprise data center and attempt to establish an IPsec. And it'll challenge the enterprise, and the enterprise will in turn challenge the terminal on the airplane to authenticate each other. So we make sure that we're, uh, in fact, talking to the end systems we expect to and at that point, we can um, uh, we 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 basically put our communication inside a payload uh, that's inside uh, a messaging uh, protocol, so that uh, it's protected. It's like putting putting a message inside an envelope and sealing it, and then putting it in the mail. And and when it when that envelope arrives at the other end, the uh, it opens it up. It can see whether it's been tampered with or not. And when it opens up, it can make sure that the the message in fact still. Uh, has integrity and it came from who you want. So it really allows us to abstract that. Uh, those that. So today, for example, uh, typically what we do is we, we secure systems on a, on a per hop basis 
and and most notably the uh, the airplane to ground hop. So, for example, uh, you can secure uh, the the wireless connection over the satellite between the airplane and the ground using, if you will, link layer security. So the so the satellite connection uh, layers on top of it a form of, of of obscuration, if you will, that allows that communication to have integrity and to be um, and to have confidentiality. Uh, of course, they know each other because the satellite terminal is connected to the teleport, and they've already they've already done their authentication. So that method of securing communication from the airplane to the ground is is uh, viable. It's uh, compelling. It works, but it only secures that part of the connection. So what it does not do is it doesn't secure the connection from the teleport all the way out to the air to, to the airline in this case. And so then trust comes into the mix. And that the airline, when it connects to the teleport, there's a there's a, an understanding that, that that communication has integrity. And, and in many cases, in order to, to buy that, the teleport will uh, put up a VPN to the uh, enterprise, so you'll have a tandem setup of over-the-air security, uh, over the wireless link to the ground into the teleport, and then a wired level of security between the teleport to the uh, airline. And, and that works, except now you have to trust that there's no exposure within the teleport, which is sort of back-to-backing that over-the-air wireless experience with that uh, over-the-wired uh, uh, secure connection. By doing end-to-end, we don't have any trust in the mix. We, we go across the teleport, we go across the terrestrial links, and end-to-end we can, we can uh, you know, have that degree of security. So that's why it's important to move in that direction. Um, that 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 is covered already by um, what we're seeing with uh, Iris, what we're seeing with AT and ITS initiatives, and of course uh, the you know my the area that I've been working most closely with uh, the AWC Network Infrastructure and Security Group or NIS uh, subcommittee developed uh, you know developing standards for uh, network security. They they have a uh, project paper 848, which is developing the media independent software. Uh, secure offboard network, MISON, which is an IPsec tunnel that, that uh, provides sort of network-level uh, security. So these, these, uh, this idea of using a VPN is embraced broadly, and it's a viable technology. Every enterprise is familiar with it. We're not asking enterprises to uh, go out and buy new appliances or develop some weird aero-specific uh, you know, protocol. It's something that they can embrace uh, right now, and it's uh, and it's compelling. It's mainstream, so it it uh, it looks really attractive to us. Another thing that you mentioned is that, and this this was actually on a recent um, Global Connected Aircraft Summit Advisory Board meeting. Uh, this was discussed by a few of the airlines on our board. Is that when you apply to put connectivity on your aircraft? There's no real, uh, you know, advisory circular out there or strict kind of step-by-step method of how to do that. Um, let's get into that a little bit more. Does that put the um, burden of security, you know, strictly on the airline themselves or their solutions and network service providers, or is it sort of a combination of both? So it's it's an interesting question because. What I see happening in the marketplace generally is that people look to the network provider to provide security, and it, and that's a part of the puzzle, but it's it's not the whole puzzle. So there's there's really three elements that that 
you know, we as an industry should be focused on. Uh, one is this uh, commercial off-the-shelf flare. So we, we want to make sure that when uh, the airplane, you know, connects to the ground um, uh, through the teleport, that, they're, that they've got a firewall in place. And it, and it really, we're just asking them to do the same things that you would do if you were running any ISP. So that's what I call COTS level security. It's very important to have that. Uh, that's where intrusion detection occurs. That's that's basically where uh, the majority of, of your mitigations are going to be um, managed. Layered on top of that is network layer security, which is what I've been talking about here with the IPsec tunnel um, providing sort of uh, sub-network to sub-network security. And, and the, the, by the way, the third layer on top of that is application layer security. So um, the, when you have uh, critical applications like flight management applications, uh, certain data link applications, you can't rely on the network to authenticate that traffic because the network isn't certified to the right level. Typically, radios are certified to what we call level D uh, in, in, in the vernacular, the, the design assurance level D, whereas things like flight management systems are certified to level C. And so if you have application uh, communications that a level C system needs to use to provide level, you know, levels that, that has a level C hazard associated with it, a level D radio can't provide an integrity check that is compelling. It has to be done at the level C level. It, 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 you know, it's, it's just a, a disconnect in, in software integrity. So there has to be another check, a third layer that is consistent with the application uh, where the application applies checks that are um, commensurate with the hazard that is represented by that messaging. So the, the network just treats it as a message, but the, the end system that receives it is going to use that information to do something. And if that information is, is you know, has, has a, a more import, if you will, then the uh, application is burdened to make sure that it, it hasn't been corrupted so that all three of those layers have to be addressed. DO-356A provides a methodology for assessing. So it's, it's not like airlines are left to their own devices. There is a methodology to allow them to make that assessment. The, the issue, the question is, do they understand their airplane well enough to make that assessment? So, uh, you, you know, you, you certainly can see the uh, aircraft manufacturer uh, getting involved in those assessments. It's hard, hard for someone uh, to, to understand necessarily what, what everything is going on if you don't have access to all the information itself, the design design information. So the network provider may not have it. Um, the OEM probably has uh, uh, some of it, and then, and then the airline knows what they're trying to do with it. So the, the airline has to orchestrate that, but they, they can't do everything themselves. They have to rely on other parties to, um, to understand how these threats are manifested and what mitigations are in place and, and, and what exposures do they have. They may not fully understand it. It's unfortunate there's no advisory circular around this today. I think it would be helpful, but the best we have is DL-356. And, and in the end, um, the good news or the bad news is, you know, airplanes are just another Internet node. The, every airline has an IT, uh, you know, information technology specialist. They deal with uh, the internet and the threats from the internet every day because they've got websites and so forth. They have their own enterprise uh, uh, networks to, to manage and maintain. The airplane doesn't really represent, from a networking threat perspective, anything unique. It's just uh, it's it's uh, it, it's another 
it's another node on the network. It's exposed to the same kinds of attacks that any other node on the network is. The issue is that those attacks may manifest themselves into a greater threat than it would be if you were, you know, attacking a fax machine in an office. It, it obviously wouldn't have the same safety implications. Yeah, it is interesting to think about how many different sort of access points and systems and networks and, you know, passenger ticket system and your own internal uh, information employee system and then where you keep your technical logs for each aircraft. Uh, it is kind of mind-boggling to think about how many different, exactly. uh, yeah. you know, systems airlines have to protect. Yeah, it's it's not just mind-boggling. It's it's uh, it's it's almost insurmountable. And I think, uh, the you know, the the problem with cybersecurity, and I and I don't live in this world uh, directly. I don't I don't I don't uh, protect an enterprise myself, so I'm I'm not on the front lines of these battles, but. Uh, it, it really sounds like it's just uh, it's uh, every time you come up with a countermeasure, the marketplace you know uh, steps up their game and, and, and it's uh, and, it, and it just keeps uh, escalating. So, uh, like I said, the good news is the airplanes really know better or no worse. It's just another network. So a lot of the learnings we have are directly applicable to what we see on an airplane. And last year, uh, 2019, um, I know you usually attend the annual AWEC AMC event. Uh, last year, it was in Prague. That's the uh, Airline Electronic Engineering Committee and Avionics Maintenance, or I'm sorry, Airline Maintenance Conference every year. Um, you gave a presentation on cybersecurity and uh, thought it was interesting. You described the electronic flight bag as Pandora's box uh, because it sort of opens up a whole new world of possible cybersecurity risks. Um, can you explain what you meant by that and what are some of the new risks that uh, connected electronic flight bags present? Firstly, let me just say that I, I love what's going on with the electronic flight bag or the FD and the community that's built up around it and, and the excitement and all the things they're doing with it. It's really a marvel to watch. And I applaud the innovation and the interest and the energy that's being put into that. So there's a huge upside. I think uh, the EFE was designed to address really shortcomings in the, in the airplane, you know, when, when Boeing and Airbus, uh, and I, I pick on those two because we're talking air transport, but, you know, when they design these airplanes, <clears throat> they have to uh, provide certain functionalities inside it. <laughs> flight management's a big one. And what we've learned is that uh, uh, changing the flight management system is very expensive. Adding new features or, or um, you know, new, new capabilities, um, that takes a long time. And, uh, and so it, it doesn't really um, cater to the same tempo that the Internet sort of is world at, you know, the app world today where, where people have an idea and they develop an app and a few months later, you know, you can, you can go download it and use it. That, that world just doesn't live. That's, that, that, that's not where we're at with airplanes today. So the EFD um, is a uh, is sort of a response to that in that it provides a platform uh, that allows the airline primarily through flight operations. So this is a pilot-centric device. Um, it, it allows them to uh, introduce or, or consolidate capabilities that right now are cumbersome or heavy. And, and you know, if you look at the beginning, um, the, the first sort of, uh, uh, aspect of this adjunct system was electronic charting. The idea, you know, pilot has to carry a, a, a whole portfolio of flight charts with them every time they come to the airplane. 
it's heavy, you know, that, that just creates burden on the human frame, carrying that stuff around. They have to be updated every couple of weeks. That's, that takes time. It's, it's tedious. Nobody liked it. Um, wouldn't it be great if these charts could be presented electronically? You wouldn't have to carry them. They would always be up to date. And that was a great idea. Ran right into some issues relating to performance. And it was the first time I think we ever really sat down and, and looked at a piece of paper and thought, how could that piece of paper fail? You know, as far as integrity, well, maybe somebody spoke coffee on it and, and it obscured some part of it, or it, it, maybe a piece of it is ripped and, and, and so you lost a part of the paper. But it, it's all pretty evident. Well, when you look at trying to do that with an electronic representation of the same information, suddenly there's all these other failures that you have to think about, about how that information could be uh, presented as being accurate, but in fact it's not. And so uh, simply taking paper and putting it into a PDF form isn't necessarily a walk in the park because you do have to consider the fact that that electronic representation uh, makes it uh, opens up a lot more avenues for that information to be corrupted where a piece of paper would be obviously have been corrupted. And that's, I think that's where our eyes opened up in the, in the, and this is in the mid nineties to the late nineties that we have to uh, be careful about this. Also, we had to worry about how quickly these systems respond. You know, a piece of paper can be available uh, as soon as you open the, 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 the binder and, and point to that page. Whereas uh, if you try to draw that from a, a repository electronically, the network uh, load could delay that. And if it takes too long, that, that might become a problem. And that, and that was a factor, by the way, back in the 90s. So that was, the, that was sort of the, the onset of this. Uh, the, but the idea really took hold. And um, this idea of being able to bring applications to the airplane that didn't have to go through the same uh, you know, uh, level C oversight and, and certification burden that it would be if it was in a flight management system became very attractive. I'll kind of leave what happened in the middle, but where we're at today um, is that the iPad has, has sort of uh, emerged as the preferred device. Now, we're talking about an iPad here. We're not talking about some, you know, unique iPad that Apple is presenting uh, for, for uh, air, airline operation. It's, it's just an iPad. So it's an off-the-shelf iPad. It's running uh, standard iOS. Now, there are um, things you can do in an application. You know, uh, Apple has uh, supported enterprise-level applications. So these are applications you can't download unless you're, um, you know, part of that enterprise. Uh, they they can uh, those applications can have secured access to protected information stores that aren't available publicly. So, so an enterprise has the option to build applications for a unique uh, target audience that is not the public, um, but yet is still sold through the App Store. Because remember, the iPad's not going to let you load applications just because you want to. It has to come through the App Store. So Apple has a role in it still. Um, where we are now, we're in a, we're in an, an, a thriving marketplace for uh, aviation applications. There are literally now uh, hundreds of applications that you can download. Uh, and again, the airline... Uh, and the pilots work together to decide which applications they're going to support. So it's not like every pilot chooses which ones they want. It's all under their operational uh, authority. So it's, it's, it's carefully monitored and managed. And I'm sure every application that comes in goes through a degree of scrutiny to make sure that it uh, works for the pilots, the human interface is solid, and, and, it, and it's a reliable application. Um, so this is, this is where we get to Pandora's box. So... Um, the regulators position the EFB 
in a special certification category. It, it doesn't, I don't find an example of this anywhere else. And it basically says that you can operate uh, and you, you assess the applications based on the level of hazard that they can represent to the airplane. What they're allowing for is that you can have applications that have a minor hazard associated with them on a commercial off-the-shelf iPad. So this, um, this sort of uh, is uh, counter to the way other avionics would be certified to, to, uh, to, to uh, allow, if you will, a level E system to host a minor hazard uh, uh, function. Uh, just doesn't make sense. Uh, normally, you would have a level D mandate, but a level D mandate would be counter to using iOS because that's a, a commercial off the shelf. It's never going to be certified to level D. So, out of necessity, the the i you know the iPad is a level E device, but out of practicality, they want these applications to be hosted on it, and out of necessity, those applications may include minor hazards. And so, the regulators are allowing for this. So it's it's a it's a unique um, position, which says that effectively the iPad or the EFD um, cannot uh, create an unsafe situation on board the aircraft, and that that is a very interesting conclusion, because uh, one of the applications you know of the many that that's being uh, pursued here has to do with takeoff settings. So this is where the pilot uh, uh, puts in the gross weight of the airplane, uh, where the center of gravity is, uh, what you know, what airport they're flying out of, and, and what the current conditions are, and uh, what runway they're going to be on, and so forth. And and from that information, out comes well. Here's your uh, V1, your VR, your V2 uh, speeds, and this is the power setting you should set the engines to for the takeoff. And um, you know, Boeing, Boeing has a thing called the Onboard Performance Tool. Uh, Airbus has uh, FlySmart. You can go to the App Store and see those there. You can't download it unless you're authorized, but they're there. And so these, these applications, you know, provided by Boeing and Airbus, uh, and, and, and I'm sure they work just fine, they, uh, they, they, they compute these numbers. The problem is, what if the pilot puts the wrong numbers in? It's a garbage-in, garbage-out scenario. So it's not that the application necessarily is... Um, uh, malfunctioning in some form. It's more a case of the pilot uh, misunderstood their gross weight uh, and uh, or or whatever. And when they put that information in, uh, the numbers that came out represented the data they put in, not necessarily the reality that the airplane is is within. Today, uh, if you didn't have an ESB, uh, the pilot would have to refer to charts or use uh, dispatch. Uh, uh, you know, uh, airline employees that operate out of a central office that help the uh, pilot, uh, you know, plan and manage their flight. So uh, through the, through that dispatch process, they could get some of this information. Um, in order to facilitate, you know, airline operations, there's a decision that they want some of these functions to be done on board instead of dispatch. So it's not that the EFB itself is creating the error. It's it's the EFB is creating a tool that could be misused. And then the question is, what what checks and balances do we have in place? to reveal that because if the pilot goes with the wrong numbers, then they're going to um, potentially not have enough power for the takeoff. So it could be a long takeoff or they could rotate at the wrong speed and that could delay the, 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 uh, the ground roll or whatever. And that happened, by the way, we've had, we've already had a couple of instances where aircraft attempted to take off with information that they had gleaned from the FB based 
on information that was incorrect, but they used it and, and, it, and it created an unsafe situation. Those, those, don't, those, aren't, those aren't happening very often. Uh, it's procedural issues that we have to deal with. I think the airlines are, are cognizant of it. Uh, and, we, and again, we're not seeing these incidents occurring. They happen, uh, the, the ones that I've noted happened a few years ago. We haven't, haven't seen or at least haven't publicly noted um, these, these types of actions occurring in, in, the, in the recent times. So I think we're learning as we go uh, to not misuse the tool, to understand its limitations. And then also, I think, to maybe open up the door for more connected checks. So, so we can use, you know, uh, the EFB outputs. The pilot can get that, but that information can go back to the ground. That can be communicated to a, a dispatch facility. You know, they can provide a, a second check of that and report back in a in real-time manner saying, hey, we looked at your numbers and uh, we think there might be a mistake or that doesn't agree with what we would add or, you know, could we recheck that? So we can use connected applications to um, improve uh, checks and balances. But the bottom line is we have to be very aware of what we're doing and understand the limitations of the tool we have. And again, representing the fact that if you put the wrong information in, you're going to get the wrong information out, but that information is going to look really good and accurate and valid. And so you have to be careful not to misuse it. Yeah, it is a very interesting, uh, you know, new a newer aspect, at least, um, you know, the, the use of the iPad as an EFB. So um, there you go. Um, now, during that presentation, you also mentioned and discussed uh, one of the topics that, that I certainly cover extensively, and uh, that is the ACARS network and possible cyber threats that may exist associated with ACARS uh, and the concept of, of ACARS over IP as well. Um, now, let's discuss, just giving the audience a little bit of an overview of what ACARS is uh, for those who don't know and uh, you know how it's changing and how those changes may or may not present new risks. ACARS, um, and by the way, if, uh, it's the Aircraft Communication Addressing and Recording System, that's what it stands for. Uh, it was developed in the late 1970s. Um, it was really developed to augment the uh, airing voice network. Uh, airlines operate with air traffic control over voice, but there's also another uh, network of, of operators, radio operators, that the airline can talk to. So when an airplane took off, a pilot report that they're airborne, that they left the gate at, you know, 2022, and we were airborne at uh, 2041, uh, and we're estimating our arrival at, uh, you know, 2142 at whatever station. And then they, the radio operator would transcribe that information, and then they would put that into a central computer, and so the airline could track the airplane. What they found was, this is in the 70s here, what we found is that uh, pilots... Uh, may have cooked the books a little bit on when they left the gate. They don't want to leave late, so maybe they say they left they left on time when maybe they didn't really push back on time. I'm not saying anybody lied here, but it's like, uh, well, you know, anyway. And then uh, payments also occur to that. So uh, uh, the the salary that's paid to the pilot, the flight time, and the and the flight attendants and so forth, they're they're based on these uh, critical times. The critical times were out leaving the gate, off when the airplane takes off on when the airplane lands, in when the airplane gets back to the gate. Generally, the getting in and out of the gate has to do with whether there's a door open or a parking gate released or if engines have started or something like that. So that out, off, on, in, or UI was the, uh, the uh, business opportunity that if it was reported more accurately, then um, 
pilots, uh, uh, flight time might be better represented. There could be more flight time in a month if they were cooking the books a little bit. That was a suspicion. Uh, again, I'm not trying to suggest anything untowards or, or bad here. It's just it's just uh, the way, you know, rounding it. Let's put it that way. So anyway, Piedmont, uh, they were the airline that stepped up and said, hey, we, we're, we'd like a data link to uh, to measure the add-off on end times and report them through a data link. Uh, they worked with Teledyne and uh, Air Inc., and they put together this uh, system called ACARS. That was in 1978. So that's when ACARS was invented. It used a particular modulation. It, it, it uh, ran at 2.4 kilobits over the VHF channel, and uh, and it had a certain uh, protocol of how the, how the message was form, formulated and how it was communicated over the air. There were integrity checks built into that protocol, again, mostly to address wireless dropouts. So there's a checksum. It's a very weak one, but there is a checksum associated with it. And then there's an addressing scheme that's unique to ACARS. It's a seven-letter addressing scheme. So, so basically, the airplane is addressed by its uh, tail number or flight number, and then the ground terminal is addressed by a seven-letter code. And, and that seven-letter code could be an airline terminal or, uh, you know, or even a, even a third party. In the end, it could have been air traffic control. Um, after the UI events were brought in, uh, of course, now you have a pipe. And so people started to think about what could you do with that pipe. Uh, the next thing that really stepped up was free text messages. So this is where the pilot can send and receive messages with uh, maintenance or operations, dispatch, things like that. And then, uh, and then there was the decision that we could we could uh, create reports out of the uh, flight data acquisition system. So, so we started to get uh, messages that were like um, a cruise a cruise report. Hey, I'm at, I'm at 34,000 feet and my engine's running at this setting and my temperatures are this and my fuel flow is that. Um, and so these messages could be uh, created automatically and communicated to the ground. And that's really where we went through the 80s. By the end of the 80s, we got to the 747-400. Uh, and at that point, uh, the 747-400 was really the first connected airplane. And so ACARS was integrated into it. Uh, and the reason was that the 747 Classic was a three-crew airplane. And we went to the 747-400. It's a two-crew airplane. The, the missing person is the flight engineer. They're, they're not on, on board anymore. And automation has to fill the role because it's not like that workload went away. So ACARS actually picked up uh, a lot of the um, overhead, if you will, of, of uh, reporting that a flight engineer would do. And so uh, ACARS was fully integrated into the 747-400. It had interfaces to the maintenance system. You could do maintenance reporting, interface to the flight management system for flight plan, uplinks and downlinks. Uh, we had an interface to the flight data acquisition system so we could do airplane health monitoring. Uh, and of course we had the, uh, you know, the connection for the UI events and for the pilot free text. Um, and, and eventually, of course, we added voice, but that we're just talking about ACARS right now. So, so the Sum 4, Sum 400 had all of these features, and, um, and then uh, we took that information, and then we, we started to ponder uh, air traffic control. And because ACARS was there, it was the established data link, we built up a protocol to use ACARS to communicate air traffic control messages. That became what's known as FANS. An unfortunate name because it's the word future is the F, but the future navigation system. And within it, there's controller, pilot, data link communication, there's CPDLC, and there's also uh, automated dependent surveillance dash contract ADSC. So these two applications communicate 
messages generally formulated by the flight management system uh, through the ACAR system, and, and, and it was done through a special protocol. So that's all done, and uh, we completed that work in 1995, and here we are in 2019. So in the last 20, you know, um, almost, well, 24 years, very little has happened um, in the ACARS network. The protocol that we established back in 1978 still stands. It's the same protocol we use today. Uh, it has, I won't go into the details, but it has some uh, market limitations, and we've had to work around those significantly, uh, and mostly in the area of, of trying to communicate uh, uh, digital information, not just uh, text. And, and so we've had to go through some special measures to allow for simply communicating a binary file over eight cars. It's, it's, it was not a walk in the park. And then the, uh, you know, we've expanded the uh, bearer systems that ACARS can work over. It started with Invarsat. Um, it, it communicated initially, I know it's hard to believe, uh, over Invarsat, over a 300 bit per second link. That went up to, um, you know, uh, today we have uh, packet channels that communicated, uh, you know, as, as high as three, 300 kilobits per second. So, so the Invarsat system uh, still, still supports ACARS. As a dedicated channel, but at, at relatively low speeds, Iridium came into the mix uh, uh, at about 2010. I, I'm not sure on that date exactly, but they developed a thing called short burst data, which is a way to convey a cars over a signaling channel. And so that's been approved. So now Iridium and Inmarsat both uh, are able to communicate a cars. Iridium, by the way, is operating still at those very narrow band speeds with Certus. Uh, we'll start to see that moving forward, but today it's still operating on those on those low-speed signaling channels. On the VHF side, we started with that 2.4K uh, link. Later, we we developed a, a, a newer standard that runs at 31.5 kilobits per second. Um, this is uh, generally known as VDL mode two. Uh, VDL mode two, uh, VDL mode zero was that 2.4. VDL mode two is the 31.5 kilobit channel. Uh, it's a little different protocol. So in in the old days, the, the classic ACARS uh, VHF channel, the uh, the management unit uh, uh, establishes the radio link uh, with the ground. In the case of VDL mode two, the radio actually establishes the data link, and then ACARS communicates over that data link. So VDL uh, mode two creates a subnetwork uh, that operates that ACARS runs on top of. Now that subnetwork did not add any additional security methodologies. It was it was created to, uh, you know, provide for the performance requirements that we're that we're dealing with here. So um, the, the issues that were you know that that have been left open with ACARS, which is that the information is communicated in the clear, uh, have, have not changed with VDMO2. It's the same the same issues are represented there. It's uh, it's just that you have a second sub-network you have to manage in addition to the ACARS and uh, end network in, in order to communicate. Um, as far as kind of looking forward with ACARS, so the, the problem with ACARS or the challenges I mentioned is that if, if, you can, if you send a message to an airplane or to a controller, because now it goes both ways, and if that message is formulated appropriately, if it adds up, if it has the right... Uh, 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 sequencing and so forth, then the message processors will accept it and will and will provide you know will 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 move that message forward as if it, if, if it's as, as if it's right if it's 
if, if it's a good message, when in fact it could be a malicious message. So um, again, there's contextual hints that you can that you can pick up on if a message has been corrupted. That this isn't this isn't a clearance I I want to accept or I'm going to question. But it's a fairly weak um, uh, method of of detecting an attack, and so we're exposed uh, in a cars. Um, and uh, in order to correct it, we have to do something fairly dramatic, and that is we we can't we we. The challenge is that all of these end systems are built around ACARS. So we can't, we can't just throw ACARS away because then we would have to redesign all the end systems. So what's being proposed is to uh, envelope ACARS over a secure link. So we, we will deliver the message securely to an end system, but so, so ACARS doesn't have to worry about that part. But on the end systems, it's just plain old, it's just, it's just ACARS. And so that's where ACARS over IP has come into the mix, and that's where ATN IPS or IPS has come into the mix in, in, in expressing, and, and by the way, uh, IRIS also is, is along these lines, although not end-to-end. IRIS is doing a VPN, or initially it was doing it from the airplane to the ground, so it was just securing the over-the-air link, whereas IPS and uh, ACARS over IP generally is directed to the end systems. So the, the VPN is established from the uh, airplane side to the receiving enterprise side, not, not to an intermediate system and then a tandem trusted network to, to achieve the end-to-end connectivity. In the case of IPS and in the case of ACARS over IP, it's an end-to-end VPN. And with an end-to-end VPN, we can layer, as I mentioned before, uh, certificate-based authentication, and we, can, and we can provide additional integrity checks so that um, we know that the message was um, sent from a facility that we respect and and uh, and and, and uh, will use. That it's not somebody masquerading as you know FAA or as an airplane, and that the message uh, hasn't been tampered with. Uh, and then on top of that, we have you know the ACARS checks to to, to work from. So I think I think uh, you know the good news is um, VDL uh, has uh, work going forward to allow for an IP connection over, over VHF. Um, but on the satellite side, it's a walk in the park. All the satellite networks today are designed around IP connections. So supporting ACARS over IP um, is, uh, is a very easy transition and one that actually will make it uh, uh, simpler and cheaper to support ACARS than it is today, uh, where we have to have these ACARS message processors kind of in the middle of the network. And that is exactly why, uh, you know, like I said, I wanted to get Peter on. I always feel like I learn a lot from him. And uh, I know our audience listening to this, you know, podcast episode certainly learned a lot um, about, you know, not only cybersecurity, but so many different intricacies of how connectivity is enabled and how it's evolving into the future. So um, there you have it. He is the uh, satcom underscore guru on Twitter. If you follow him there, you'll also learn a lot. And uh, please check out his blog as well. Uh, I know I certainly learn a lot from that. Uh, thank you, Peter, for coming on the Global Connected Aircraft podcast today. It was a delight, and thank you for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Global Connected Aircraft podcast. Just a reminder again that you can see all of the information about our annual Global Connected Aircraft Summit at www.gcasummit.com. 
My name is Woodrow Bellamy III, and thanks again for tuning in to the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. 